Throughout history, people have tried to protect themselves from injury and attack um, with different types of materials. Earliest days, um, people sought to take animal hide and wrap it over their skin as kind of a, a second skin. And eventually they started adding wood and metal plates to that to create armor. Eventually then they started weaving metal rings together with plates to create a a solid uh, second skin of steel. Then the invention of gunpowder changed all that. In the 1500s, Italian and Roman royalty experimented with the idea of a bulletproof vest. They built body armor with multiple layers of metal, soft metal on the outside to... Um, you know, try to deflect the bullet, harder stuff inside to keep it from uh, penetrating. Uh, They proved to be largely ineffective against firearms. It developed a little bit further in the early 1900s after the assassination of President William McKinley. They began to try to come up with a vest that could stop a bullet. I don't know how much they paid the guy on the left, but it probably wasn't enough. And if you'll notice, the guy holding the gun is aiming at his face, <laughs> which is not where the vest is. Anyway, um, fast forward to World War II and the invention of the flak jacket. It's made of ballistic nylon, provided some protection from ammunition fragments. In the early 1970s, the DuPont company came up with this stuff called Kevlar. Kevlar, the ballistic fabric, was intended to replace originally steel belting in tires, it was extremely strong. It, was, it had an incredible tensile strength, and they began to add waterproofing to it and additional layers and weaving it together to try to make these vests more durable and wearable. Ultimately, Kevlar was found to have a 95% probability of survival after being hit with a 38 caliber bullet at a velocity of 800 feet per second. By 1976, scientists had come to the conclusion that Kevlar was bullet-resistant enough, wearable enough, and light enough for police officers to wear it full-time. And since that time, bulletproof vests have continued to improve. Currently, uh, a level 3A bulletproof vest, like this one here, um, has, weighs about 5.5 pounds. It's not terribly heavy. You know, it, it slips on pretty quickly once you don't hit your microphone. And, um, you know, it, it's it's fairly comfortable, right? It's, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's nice. Protects the, this can protect the wearer from almost all handgun rounds. So I want to thank Officer Scott Hessong for allowing me to borrow his armor. Um, grateful for that. Uh, according to the International Association of Chiefs of Police, bulletproof vests have saved over 3,000 officers' lives since the mid-1980s. This is a modern marvel of protection, Essentially, this is 30 layers of Kevlar woven together in in such a way as to provide enough protection to stop a bullet. That's cool. You know what's even cooler? God has a bulletproof vest for you too. Open your Bibles to Isaiah 41. Open your Bibles to Isaiah 41. That's going to be our text today. Thank you so much uh, for being here this morning. For those uh, here in the room, I'm grateful that you're here. For those watching online, thanks for logging in. Um, and for the, especially to our graduates, congratulations uh, on that. And family members who are here visiting, we're, we're excited for your, uh, your uh, high-achieving um, folks. Um, one reminder before we go any further, uh, next weekend is Memorial Day. 
Historically, Chapel Rock has had a Saturday night service because anyone who lives east of Girls School Road can't move <laughs> uh, because of race day traffic. However, the race is a little bit later, and over the last year, we've all adjusted to having church online. So next Sunday, it's our, just our normal service times, 9.15 and 11, okay? So that's the plan for next week. Uh, last Sunday, Fred started a new sermon series for us called The Rhapsody of Redemption. And we're looking at these servant songs in the last third of Isaiah's uh, book of Old Testament prophecy. Uh, Let me talk to you a little bit about the word rhapsody. It comes from the Greek word rhapsodos, which originally described a reciter of epic poetry. Later, it came to be used in Europe by the 16th century as a designation for lots of different literary forms, not just epic poems, but really any kind of writing that was one of extravagant expression or sentiment or feeling. You, you would say this is a rhapsody because they just push language to the breaking point to try to describe what they're feeling. Eventually, it got picked up on by the musical community and primarily now is associated with music as a, as a single movement piece with a really strong feeling or mood to it, and which I think is a really good description of what Isaiah is doing here in the final third of the book. It's a rhapsody. As he begins to lay out God's plan to redeem the, his people, it's a rhapsody. He, the servant songs of Isaiah have this strong mood. There's an extravagant expression of feeling. Isaiah is looking forward to and longing for God's Messiah to come and fix the, this world, and he pushes his literary form to the breaking point to do it. Today we're talking about a song of protection. And this song that God sings in Isaiah 41, I think, weaves together two different themes. Just like a bulletproof vest is made of different fibers of Kevlar woven together to protect the the officer or soldier wearing it, this chapter weaves together two different themes that speak of God's song of protection over his people. So what I want to do today, if you'll let me, is just kind of unweave it briefly, (laughs) I want to show you these two themes. Because what happens is it's just kind of, we're just back and forth. We kind of ping pong back and forth from one to the other down through the chapter. And so what I want to do is just kind of pull them apart so you can see what they are and then see how they weave together to protect you. Okay? We're going to look at each one in turn. Here's the first one. That God takes away our fear by directing history. God takes away our fear by directing history. That's the first theme that we see in this passage. Throughout the passage, God draws our attention again and again to himself as the one who is directing history to its appointed end. How many of you have ever been traveling with a friend in a place where the friend had been there before and you had not? Anybody ever do that? Right? It's great, isn't it? Because you can just, which which way do we go? We go up here, we go up that street, and we hang a right. Great. It's so comforting, right? You're not afraid to be in an unfamiliar place because your friend has been there before. Well, guess what? When it comes to the future, God is already there. <laughs> he exists outside time. Time is something, you know, external to God. He, he, he's already in the future. And so he's able to direct history to, to its appointed end. This is something, and it, what, what that does for us is we don't have to be afraid anymore. I want you to look for that theme in the text as we read it together. Look with me at Isaiah 41. Verse one, be silent before me, you islands. Now, you're gonna see the word islands a bunch as we go on through these successive weeks. In Old Testament prophetic literature, that was the way that the Hebrew prophets used to refer to nations all over the planet. 
right? Islands is kind of code. If you have an older translation, it might say distant coastlands. And it's kind of code for all the nations outside Israel's kind of immediate vicinity in the ancient Near East, all right? So it's, it's every, all the people on the earth is who he's talking to. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. God is calling all the nations of the ancient world into his divine court to be judged. Who has stirred up the one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? Now, who he's talking about here is Cyrus of Persia. It's an it's a, a actual historical person that God used to judge Israel. The one from the east is Cyrus, calling him in righteousness to his service. He hands nations over to him. We gotta map out the pronouns. The first he is God, then the him is Cyrus. He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to windblown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I the Lord. Now, when you see, uh, just a reminder, I know I've told you this, but let me tell you again, when you see it in all caps, that means in Hebrew, it's Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God, the Lord. With the first of them and with the last, I am he. First and last. Does that sound familiar? Revelation 1, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. Revelation 22, he says it again, I am the first and the last. God is the uncaused first cause. Before there was anything, there was God. And he, long after, <laughs> he, he, he's eternal. That's what that means. He, he, he's describing himself here. He, he's saying, I am sovereign over all time. Right now, skip down to verse eight. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. Now, we're getting in. Who is this servant? We're gonna talk a little bit more about that next week. Okay, I just kind of want to just, is, is it the nation of Israel? Is it Abraham's family? Is it Jesus? Is it who, or hang on, okay? It's, the answer is probably yes, but um, we'll get more into that next week. He said, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. Probably a little poetic license here. Haran in modern day Iraq is not exactly the ends of the earth from where Israel is. <laughs> He's just saying it was far away, Okay. Remember, this prophecy was given to Isaiah in Jerusalem, right? He, I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you, so do not fear. I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. God is, is saying, I, you know, I used um, other nations to judge Israel. I can use Israel to judge the other nations. Verse 15, he picks up on that image again. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. He's talking about harvesting crops here. 
You will thresh the mountains and crush them, reduce the hills to shaft. You will winnow them, and the wind will pick them up, and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Now skip down to verse 25. I have stirred up the one from the north. Well, who's that? Also Cyrus, okay? Because <laughs> Persia is east from Israel. It is also north of Israel. It's both, same dude, okay? I've stirred up the one from the north, and he comes from one from the rising sun. What's that an image of? The east. You get the point. Same guy. Who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading the clay. Who told of this from the beginning so that we could know, or beforehand so that we could say he was right? No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion, a reference to Jerusalem, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good news. The point of all this is that God is showing his command over history. And because God has a command over history, you don't need to be afraid. The future should not cause you fear because God is sovereign over history. He takes away our fear. It's how he protects us. The theologian and professor Paul Tillich wrote extensively about how God exercises his sovereignty over history. And I want to read a couple quotes to you from two different sermons delivered by Tillich sometime in the mid-1940s. Now, what was going on in the mid-1940s? World War II. He's he's preaching these things coming right out of World War II. Um, Paul is actually from... Prussia, Europe, he'd seen the horrors of the Nazi regime firsthand. Um, He ultimately came to America um, and and became an American. But the first one was from a a series of messages through Isaiah. And in this sermon uh, called the, The Shaking of the Foundations, he writes about the preaching of the Old Testament prophets. And he writes this, why were the prophets able to face what they knew and then pronounce it with such overwhelming power. Their power sprang from the fact that they did not really speak of the foundations of the earth as such, but of him who laid the foundations and would shake them. And they did not speak of the doom of the nations, and by the way, he's using the word doom here in much the same way that Professor Tolkien used it in The Lord of the Rings. Not so much like death and destruction, but an appointed time of judgment that there's this, this critical moment in history where this is gonna happen, all right? That's, that's how Tolkien used it. I think that's how Tillich, by the way, written about the same time, is, is using the word here too. That they did not speak of the doom of the nations as such, but of him who brings doom for the sake of his eternal justice and salvation. Then later in a sermon on Romans 8, 38 and 39, which says that God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's that verse, right? On a sermon called The Meaning of Providence, Tillich writes this. Providence does not mean a divine planning by which everything is predetermined as is an efficient machine. Rather, providence means that there is a creative and saving possibility implied in every situation which cannot be destroyed by any event. Providence means that the demonic and destructive forces within ourselves and our world can never have an unbreakable grasp on us and the bond which connects us to the fulfilling love, he's talking about of God, remember Romans 8, can never be disrupted. For Paul Tillich, and for me too since I think he's right, (laughs) the idea of God as the Lord of history, him directing it where he wants it to go, 
is not so much the image of a director of a play telling the actors where to stand and what to say and when to say it, so much as it is that of a master gardener knowing where to plant this and where to plant that and when to plant it so that all the plants grow at the right season and, and, and produce their harvest at just the right time. That's the image that God is, is getting at here, that God is sovereign over history. And, and I, want, I want to clarify this for you because I think it's, it's so critical that you understand this. I think there's been this image that God has predetermined every event that will ever happen for all time. I don't think that's the picture that Isaiah is saying or that the Bible as a whole presents. I, I don't think so because otherwise that would make God the author of evil, right? Can you resist the will of God? Yes. You can't, how do you know? Have you sinned? This is where you say yes, just as loud, right? <laughs> of course you can resist the will of God. Every time you sin, you resist the will of God. You can, there's usually a price to pay for it, and living your life his way generally works out better for you than living it your way. And people who come forward to be baptized here because they've heard the gospel that Jesus died on the cross in their place for their sins have reached a point where they're like, I stink at running this thing. Here, you take it. Right? I think what, what God is doing and what causes us to not have to be afraid, the way that God protects our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength is by saying, I have planted things in your life that will reach a harvest at the appropriate time. And there's going to be some times that you're going to be waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and not know what's next. You've got to trust me. I have a plan. I planted these things in you. And there will be times, Christian, where God has to do some pruning. How do you think a plant feels about pruning? Ow, 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 ow. I don't like it. I know, but it's how you grow. Some time ago, you know, I asked the question, was the coronavirus God's judgment on a world that has rejected him? And my firm answer was, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I do know this. Demographers had studied what they call the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, none, no religious affiliation. And they were noting how these people were just kind of, every, they'd show up every now and then at church, but they were not really connected, and they don't know if they really even believe, but they just felt like it was good to go every now and then. It was good for you. It's like eating your vegetables. And they, by, by and large, coronavirus has caused them to just check out entirely. Do you suppose maybe God used this to prune his church a little bit? I wonder. When we look at how God is directing history. I am comforted. My, I, I don't have to be afraid. I don't maybe understand it all. And God, as the master gardener, plants things way back in history and then all of a sudden they come to fruition. And, wow, and it blows your mind. Like, Whoa, this is amazing. It's because he knew what he was doing ages ago. Here's the point. As God does this painful pruning, you are protected against any ultimate hardship that might do damage to you. Your God will sustain you. He will see you through to the end. It protects us. This idea of God as sovereign over history protects us because we don't have to be afraid. That's one theme. There's another one. 
Here's the second. He strengthens our faith by exposing the powerlessness of idols. He strengthens our faith by exposing the powerlessness of idols. Do you know what the most common question is that the guides at the Brooklyn Museum of Egyptian Art get? You know what's the most common question? Here's what they hear more than anything else. Why are all the statues' noses broken? You ever notice that in, in depictions of ancient, like all, like none, none of them have a nose, right? <laughs> and and that, mo, that was the most common question. And so Ed Bleiberg, who oversees the museum's Egyptian art, was kind of surprised the first few times because he's like, well, it's, it's 4,000 years old. Cut the thing some slack, right? Like, you know, put, put it on a pedestal, it falls off, pff, nose breaks. But he kept hearing it. He thought, well, maybe I ought to look into this. So he started doing some study. And he found out that as he began to study this, it wasn't just the statues, even the flat relief. So just carving on a wall, they'd bust the nose. And he looked at it some more, and he saw that not only was it just the sign of a fracture, like it fell, there were chisel marks. And so this wasn't a vandal with a ball bat. This is a skilled stonemason who knows exactly where to tap to knock that nose off. He said, these things are deliberate. See, the ancient Egyptians believed, along with many other ancient people, that the essence of a deity could inhabit the image of that deity. And these campaigns of vandalism were therefore intended to deactivate an image's strength. The damaged part of the body can't do its job anymore. Essentially, that you break the idol, it has no power. And that's the theme that Isaiah is describing in this text. Look with me at Isaiah 41, starting in verse 5. The islands, again, distant coastlines, all the nations of the world, have seen it and fear. Now what had he been talking about? God's sovereignty over history. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. They, say, they, they help each other and say to their companions, be strong, right? They're in God's presence. They're in the divine courtroom and they're going, come on, we can do this. And God's like, you guys are funny. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith and the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. What are they talking about? Making idols, making false gods, right? The exact opposite of what God said in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not have any graven images. Don't, don't make idols. That's what they're doing. He spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. Anvil, one says of the welding, it is good. <laughs> the other nails down the idol so it will not topple. <laughs> Now, I don't know about you. Sometimes I probably annoy you. The I, stuff I think is funny, you don't get, but I, you're just not as cool as me. So um, <laughs> this is hilarious to me. As God is describing, they're making these idols, right? And he goes, we, got, we better nail this down so it don't fall over. Oh, your God has so much power. Wow. It's good, they say. And God says, it's not good. It's not good at all. Look at verse 13. He says, for I am the Lord of your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear. Both themes weave in this idea of not being afraid. I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm, Jacob. <laughs> I love that. I love it. You know, sometimes we get all puffed up. We got, we're all that in a bag of chips. And God says, you ain't even one chip. You a worm. Little Israel, 
Do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer. That's the word that's used in Ruth about Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, the one who comes in and takes someone in a desperate situation and rescues them and puts them in a right relationship. The Holy One of Israel. Look at verse 17. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched grounds into springs. What's he doing? He's recalling the language of the Exodus. Remember, water from the rock, all people drank. I will put in the desert the cedar and acacia, the myrtle and olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm gonna turn the waste into a green garden so the people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. It's God's sovereignty over creation. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king, the only place in the whole Bible where he's referred to in that term. Tell us, you idols, what is gonna happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them or know their final outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. You're like, well, Casey, that almost sounds like the, the theme that you were talking about. Oh, it does, but look, look. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we'll be dismayed and filled with fear. Do something. What he's saying, you have no power. Verse 24, but you are less than nothing. Your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. Skip down to verse 28. I look, but there is no one, no one among the gods to give counsel. No one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. He's saying that basically idols cannot know or, or predict the future and therefore their counsel is pointless and powerless. I'll make one recommendation here. If you enjoy swimming in the deep end of the pool theologically a little bit, if you want to drill into this, like what, what do they mean in the Old Testament when they talk about other gods? Are they, are they like actual like things or what, what is going on there? I would encourage you to read Christopher Wright's book, The Mission of God, big fat honking thing. It's really good. It's really, really good, but it's definitely the deep end of the pool. And because he asked the question in the Old Testament, what do they mean when they say other gods? Is, is it a real thing? Is it not real? Is it, what's going on? And we don't have time to get into it too much today, but basically his, his conclusion there is it was a real thing, whether or not it was a demon or another spiritual being, we don't know. Certainly the idol is a real physical thing, but compared to God, it's nothing. That's his, that's his conclusion. Is it, is it a real spiritual entity? Maybe. But compared to God, nothing. It's absolutely, it has no power. There's no power there. Over and over and over again, God is telling his people that the way that the servant protects them is by pointing out how powerless their idols are. And it's always uncomfortable when this happens, but occasionally God allows us to see how powerless our idols are when you realize that the things that we try to put in God's place in our lives don't really have any power, certainly not when compared with God, that ought to draw you into a closer walk of faith with him. He strengthens your faith by showing you just how weak and powerless your idols are. 
And that is actually, I want you to hear me, church, this is actually God protecting you. He's protecting you from getting trapped into worshiping your idol, and maybe that's sex, or maybe that's money, or maybe that's, you know, politics, or maybe that's even your own physical health. Look very carefully at your idol. Is its nose broken? Now, I'm about to say something that could really sting. I love you enough to tell you the truth. I'm going to try to be an equal opportunity offender here, okay? Some of you have idols. You have not physical ones. I hope you don't. But you have things that you have put in your life that get to outrank what God says. Those are idols. And God may say something here in this book, and you read it, and you go, nah, that, that's not, not me. I'm, no, no, no. That's idol worship. Because you are allowing something to outrank God. I don't know if you've noticed, but that typically doesn't work out too well for the people who do it. It's idol worship. If you're, whoa, 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 you mean to tell me your opinion matters more than God's? I'm going to stand over here so I don't get hit with the shrapnel when he spites you. And the reason you worship those things, and maybe it's money, and maybe it's sex, and maybe it's politics, and maybe it's even your own physical health, and the reason you worship those things is because you feel like they give you power. Look at it, look at, look at it. Does it still have a nose? No, there's no power there. There's no strength there, certainly not compared to God. God is trying to protect you from the pain of bowing down at a false God with no power. Are you wearing the vest he's given you? Two years ago, hundreds of thousands of Christians in Hong Kong mobilized to protest a proposed extradition bill. The bill would effectively strip protections for religious expression in Hong Kong by expanding the jurisdiction of the communist-controlled courts of mainland China. And as they gathered, social media footage has confirmed the song that has become their rallying cry, the 1974 chorus, Sing Hallelujah to the Lord. The Chinese government tried to paint these protesters in Hong Kong as violent revolutionaries, and then the footage came out of them sitting around singing, Sing hallelujah to the Lord. And the narrative just kind of died. They're not throwing bottles. They're not throwing rocks. They're singing. And it just calls back to that moment in Philippi when Paul and Silas are sitting there in prison with their legs splayed wide in the stocks and their backs bleeding up against a stone wall. And Paul says to Silas, brother, we need to sing. And they sing praise to God and an earthquake comes. God has given you a song of protection and that song, it protects your heart because it tells you that he's in charge of history and the false gods of this world have no power. It protects like a bulletproof vest for your soul, man. 
And he says, I will reach down and I will take hold of your right hand and I will hold on to you. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to worry. I got you, man. (laughs) Did you get the big idea this morning? If the Lord is holding your hand and singing a song of protection over you, you need not fear. He is directing your life to produce fruit for him at just the right time and in just the right way. And there might be some painful pruning and you might have to wait longer than you like, but he's in charge. And he has exposed the powerlessness of all the things that we try to put in his place and he is protecting you from harm because you know that thing has no power. And those two themes come together and they are woven together to provide a bulletproof vest around our soul. Have you received that from him? Do you have it? Are you wearing it today? Jesus died so that you could have it on the cross, in your place, for your sin. And if you've never made a decision to surrender your life to him, you're walking around unprotected. In just a moment, we're going to sing that song that our Chinese brothers and sisters sang. And I would encourage you, if you've never made a decision, to, to decide today to give your life to Jesus. Come under the Lord's protection. Be baptized. Receive his spirit. Maybe, maybe you've tried to retake God's place of lordship in your life. put a powerless idol in his place and need to repent. Do that. If you have another prayer need, you come. Pastors will be down front ready to receive you. If you've been through our most recent Wired class and want to place your membership with our church body, you come as we sing. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and we're going to sing this song that our brothers and sisters sang.